Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I'm your host, Drake. I'm Kyle. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Jocelyn Wentland, who's an adjunct professor in psychology at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, as well as a research associate with the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, or CCAN. Uh, welcome, Jocelyn. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jocelyn, for joining us. Uh, we're really excited to have you and have the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you've come from? Yeah, for sure. So right now, um, I've got two positions, and I think you guys mentioned this in the intro. I uh, work part-time, or I'm an adjunct faculty at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, and have just taught in psychology predominantly, so some social psych, um, interpersonal relationships, uh, sexuality. And then my full-time um, other hat that I wear is with uh, the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada. And that's a national health education organization located out of Toronto. I work remotely from Kelowna. Um, so we're working on lots of different national education projects, um, which are pretty timely given everything that's going on um, around the country uh, right now. And then as part of being um, a professor, I've done a number of research projects, and that's how I originally um, kind of came to know Drake after he took one of my students at the University of Ottawa. And recently I just finished up, we've just uh, finalized the manuscript for some um, emoji research. So I can talk about that and I'm still in like the data, like depths of um, looking at some timing to first sexual activity and some cool stuff about like if people meet on Tinder, et cetera. And then that comes from a background in casual sex research and looking at definitions of casual sex. So I've got a little bit of a spattering of all these things um, that are like super cool, I think. And, you know, I'm a pretty mm. interesting dinner guest because people are typically pretty <laughs> interested in talking about this kind of stuff. Oh, sounds fantastic. I know all of that sounds excellent. So wherever we go with this episode, it's a little bit unplanned. It's going to be great. I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, so... Why don't we dive in uh, really quickly. You mentioned off the top, uh, casual sex. Can you help us and our listeners just get an understanding as to what it means to a researcher, uh, what, what casual sex means to a researcher? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a, that's like a really good starter question, Kyle. That's like a stumper. <laughs> so, and it's, and it's so timely, or I guess it's like really, um, it's a good base because it really, I'll, I'll share a little bit about how I got into it. And I wasn't really planning on being a casual sex researcher. Um, When I first started my PhD, I'd finished my master's with Ed Harold looking at highly sexual women. And my plan was when I went on to do my PhD was to um, look at what are the types that really focus in on women still and look at the types of like relationships, casual and otherwise, that women have. So, you know, good little student starting at my literature review, start digging into things and I'm like, oh, okay, so like women have this kind of casual sex and they have this kind of casual sex. And I was like, okay, well, I really need to like know what these types of relationships are. And the further I dug, I was like, oh, like all these researchers are using different definitions. And that's really problematic when you're trying to measure something and kind of like find like, okay, what's the general kind of stat here? And then that is really where it changed and my research, instead of kind of focusing on women's relationship types, became really more of a, um, like a measurement um, dissertation. So then I was like, okay, well, in order to measure and make sure that we have valid measures of casual sex relationships, we've really got to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. So that put me on this whole other path of looking at how do we come up with these original definitions? Um, first of all, how do we make sure they're validated? And then how do we test those to make sure that, yes, when we say a booty call, this is what people are thinking. And the majority of people endorse that kind of a definition. 
Um, and what's really, really frustrating and time and time again, like I get papers that I'm asked to review and researchers are just out there kind of willy nilly still using a definition of casual sex, whatever they kind of think that will work for their paper. And it's like the number one thing that I complain about is like, this isn't a def like this isn't a valid definition. You can't now have a paper about casual sex, um, you know, when you haven't like thought about what, what you're using to measure it. And it's weird because I don't think that that happens in any other in many other fields. Like if you're researching on sexual satisfaction, you'd have to make sure you're using a validated, you know, this industry standard or sexual desire or things like that or low libido, anything like that. People would you would have to use the standard definition. So as a researcher in this field, it's been incredibly frustrating. So that's my little rant about like why <laughs> we like valid definitions, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and I mean, within sex research, it's hard, too, because there's so much political standpoints behind it, too. Right. And and everybody has their own opinion about sex, even though they don't want to they don't want to measure it correctly. Especially when I've done some like media releases. And it's so funny because it's it just like sex research and research in general. Um, people it hits like it, it hits people's values and you see their values come out. But that's like a like a, on drugs when you're talking about casual <laughs> sex, like people just they get uncomfortable. They don't know how to, you know, and even like reporters and they would just be like, well, why do people even want to have casual sex in the first place? And I'm like, OK, that's like, you know, that's kind of like a pretty like general question. But it's just obviously it's so related to their own values. Um, and that's something we can talk about, too, because I think it's one of the stereotypes that, you know, we can talk about later about thinking that casual sex is always, you know, lacks emotion, lacks intimacy, is not very good. And I don't think that that's the case, but that's definitely people's impressions of it. And I think that's what comes out when people are thinking about casual sex, because um, it definitely is an area where it, it just it brings out people's values. And I see it in my students. They get uncomfortable in class. They're shifting positions. And I'm like, OK, so now we're having like a physiological response. <laughs> to a topic that like hey you don't have to like share any responses here i'm just sharing the research but it, it just it gets to people in a way that i don't think other research gets absolutely and i find that there's a lot of buy-in for people and and this urge to kind of give anecdotes when it comes to sex research it's like not everybody does that for every type of research but yeah. sex research is one of those ones and i where think it's... that's probably related to in my opinion i think that in the vast majority of people are just they don't have an outlet to talk about sex and that's why when i made that comment about like being an interesting dinner guest and you know when people think like oh you go to a sex research conference like oh my god what happens there <laughs> people really get like they're so so interested and when you're in the field, you kind of forget that not everybody is like, hmm, let's analyze all these stages of relationships and sex and how people communicate. Like, that's not the general person's interaction with sexuality or their own sense of sexual self. So then when they do, you know, when they're inter like when they have that interface with it, um, they just I think it's it's new for them. They don't necessarily have the skills to talk about it. And they're only relevant like their only point of perspective is this anecdotal sharing because that's all they have they don't have the broader scape and like when i talk about it, i can talk about research i can talk about it very general it's not personal to me but for most people it is really personal for them because that's mm -hmm. their their only experience with it. totally yeah, yeah. totally I, I find that really interesting because uh as we kind of joked about before we started here 
this is a, an area of research that I'm not terribly familiar with. And so coming into it, I consider myself a lot more naive than anything else. And so being able to have these conversations and, and speaking with, you know, researchers like yourself to learn how to talk about these things, I think is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Something that I've learned over the course of uh, the episodes we've done on, on sex research, it's been really enlightening for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And so on that, sorry, on that note, can I, you might've been doing the same thing, Kyle, on this one, but on that note of defining things and being able to talk about it in a way that's more empirically founded, uh, can we talk a little bit about how casual sex is defined in research? Because you threw yeah. out member meetings for long hours where we go yeah. on about how we define these things and what's the difference between, yeah. you know, a one night stand versus a booty call versus mm -hmm. a fuck buddy. Those things are actually conversations that we've had Yeah, and, you, and you've defined in your work. And for me, I think as an out, out someone outside of uh, this, this literature, which is the majority of people, yeah. um, they would think they have different definitions of casual sex, like you said, that are anecdotal. Maybe it's just one night stands is what casual sex is mm -hmm. in someone, is someone's definition, right? So yeah. how do you define it? I mean, maybe I could even ask Kyle what his definition of casual sex is, but like, because he doesn't <laughs> oh, no. do the research, but like, what would you define as casual sex? Like, would you have thought of one night stands, booty calls, fuck buddies, and, and like friends with benefits, are those things that you would have thought of whenever you heard casual sex, Kyle? I honestly don't know what my definition of casual sex would be. Um, that's a great question. Wow, yeah. we started with two like stuffing <laughs> questions right off the bat. Maybe we here. should give that one to Jocelyn because she has a better idea. Well, I mean, I can I can offer you know in 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 my view, I guess casual sex is sex that doesn't necessarily revolve around the building of a relationship or long term yeah. intention. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know, you know, does does a fuck buddy really qualify as that? Because that's somebody that you've got in theory, some sort of relationship. Yeah. You have an understanding. It's like, to be a fuck buddy, it's not just a one-night stand. It's multiple events over multiple, you know, over yeah. a course of time. And so, therefore, you have a relationship there. So I don't know if that would actually qualify as a casual sex encounter. Right? Yeah, and that's a good, like, kind of differentiation. And I'm wondering, when I talk about, say, casual sex, and I'm thinking about, like, when I'm writing academically, I probably would say casual sexual activity referring to this general kind of behavior so and I always use like my standard you know kind of boilerplate language is just sex outside the context of a committed relationship sexual activity meaning any kind of sexual activity you get to define that um, but it should be something more than kissing because I have seen papers come about that say that include kissing and I'm like I don't really think that kissing is really the same as when we were talking about like you know oral sex, anal sex, vaginal intercourse, like we're really kind of not talking about the same things here when we're talking about kissing. But if we just say some kind of sexual activity, um, you know, I've started using definitions more that include something about that, that could lead to orgasm. Don't necessarily, but activities that could lead to orgasm. I guess some people could get an orgasm from kissing, but like, let's Especially just open mouth. Come on now. assume they're not the ones. So it's really just sex outside the context of a committed relationship. And some researchers, like a paper that I just reviewed um, a couple days ago, uh, used this, you know, an additional um, kind of classification of that occurred only once. And that's really different because then we're really talking about, you know, potential, not necessarily strangers, but it definitely picks up that. And that's a very different kind of casual sex to me than ongoing casual sex that still could be um, under some, you know, like the friendship and sometimes that's just a cover. But anyway, so that's what I would use for casual sex is outside the context of a committed relationship. Um, 
when you start using casual sex, like if you measure intercourse and typically the vast majority of intercourse stats about casual sex are, have looked at, they're just very hetero. So they're looking at vaginal intercourse and it's about 35 to 40% of a sample will have engaged in casual sexual intercourse with another partner. Um, I don't have, I've never seen good stats on anal intercourse and I think it's mm -hmm. maybe just not all that common for researchers to be specifically asking about it. Um, I would assume it'd be a little bit lower. When you just ask people, have you ever engaged in some kind of casual sexual activity with somebody and you don't say that it has to be intercourse, um, it jumps up to about 85% of people will have some kind of lifetime casual sex experience. Um, most of those don't include kissing. Some of them might be. So, I mean, maybe use like 70%, but so it's the vast majority of people having, have at least one instance of it. Um, so where I was really interested though, is because I was looking at the types of like casual sex that women engage in. And I knew that there's these relationships that they engage in. And I use that term really loosely, but I think that it, speaks to um, how researchers really need to be a little bit more inclusive of different types of relationships. And I speak about this a ton in my interpersonal relationships course that for many people, a relationship is not long-term sexually or romantically monogamous. Um, like, but for whatever reason in our society, that's like the gold standard that everybody should be ascribing to. And if you don't have that, then you're some kind of like a relationship idiot. So the people that then engage in these casual sex relationships, they think there's like some stigma about them because it's like, oh, well, can you not hold down a real relationship? And it's like, well, and again, it's all that value stuff that starts to come out when you, you know, kind of broaden things. Um, yeah. So what I ended up coming up with is we did focus groups. We had, um, and these were mostly young adults who came in and we just said to them, what are some of the terms used to describe casual sex? And we got tons and tons and tons. And it was really interesting. Um, the four that came out that we ended up taking forward were one night stand, booty call, fuck buddy or fuck friends. But I just use fuck buddy and friends of benefits. But there was probably, you know, 15 or 16 others. If we did this, you know, study again now, there'd be ones that didn't come up. Just at the end of my um, research, fuck boy was coming up as a term um, that was like being popularly like kind of was gaining popularity, but it wasn't something that came up in our initial focus groups. So I think that this speaks to also just, you know, how these how these terms change over time um, and become more popular and they kind of morph. But again, they're kind of all under this umbrella. So the one night stand um, was defined as typically strangers, but not necessarily somebody that you don't know that well. Uh, you meet them out like it's unplanned, um, but you meet them out at a bar, a party, some kind of a social gathering, um, typically under the influence. You have sex with them one time. Um, and so then from this, like we, we created the scripts and what was really interesting is people would say like, you might exchange their information, like contact information with them. Um, or you might already have it, but you have no intentions of using it. That's just like the nice saying goodbye at the door. Hey, I should get your number. See you later. Have a nice life. Yeah. <laughs> So then from there, and if it became, maybe if you contacted your one night stand again, that might tra transition into more of a booty call because the booty call really, I mean, it's a late, typically a late night text or phone call. So 
you know the person. You have to have their contact information in some way. Um, maybe it's just, you know, online you contacted them, but whatever. Um, typically under the influence, but not necessarily, and occasional sexual activity. So our participants would say things like, uh, I knew I was going out this night. Uh, I knew this one person might be out. So I sent them a text at the beginning of the night being like, hey, uh, are you heading out later? And then that would be it. They wouldn't talk to them for like the next five hours. But then at like, you know, 1.30 rolls around, nothing else is being drummed up at the bar. It's like, hey, where are you at now? So mm-hmm. kind of laying some groundwork to to have that. I think there's a there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother that actually addresses that perfectly. I don't know if you've watched the series at all. Yes, I haven't seen but, that one. But yeah, I always my students always bring this up. They're like, this is just like How I Met Your Mother. There's an episode. Yeah. I'm like, yes. Then you guys all have like the <laughs> cultural reference for it. Yeah. 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 Totally. It's perfect because because I think like with a guy that hooks up with other, I think it's Barney. All he sends a, te- a long text at the beginning of the night. And then as the night drones on, it gets later and later. The, the texts have to get shorter to ha- for him to have sex with somebody. So at the end of the night at like 4 a.m., yeah. he sends a question mark and the girl comes over. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and like, totally. that's like the progression of what I yeah. what you define as, as a, a booty call. Yeah. And like what yeah. else is really interesting too, and I think that's where the call came, because obviously like these were, these behaviors existed before texting existed. Um, and I love my students. They're always like, oh, like casual sex is so new. And I'm like, okay, like give yourselves <laughs> a little pat on the back. I hope you feel good about yourselves, but like that is not true. It has been going on a long, long time. We have really great evolutionary research about like why casual sex behaviors and strategies existed, you know, how people employ them in different um, contexts and scenarios. So I'm like, that's not true. Um, but the call, when we talk about the phone call, it was interesting because I'd say like, oh, like, and this was all in the focus groups. And I'd say, okay, well, like, when is it appropriate to call your booty call? And they were like, oh, yeah, totally. If you're too drunk and you can't compose a legible text message, then you should call them because you're just sending like gobbledygook that they can't read. Or if there's a chance that they're too drunk that they won't get the message, like they won't hear the phone, like the text notification little beep or buzz, and you really want to make sure that like they get that you're trying to, you know, line up a booty call for right now. So then it was okay to call because then you're going to say like, hey, I'm coming over or like to meet or whatever it was so those are the only times that it was like appropriate to call is like if you're too drunk or the other person might be too drunk so i have a quick question about yeah. that uh, you're talking about you know the last two we've talked about sex typically under the influence yeah and i don't know this might be outside your purview but how does how do issues like consent play a role in all of this yeah it's a because i imagine that's a hugely challenging yeah aspect, right? and you know when i started doing this research consent was not as um, I mean, I'm not to say that it wasn't important, but it wasn't as a big of a focus going on. Right. Um, and I would say that because the scripts, and that was what was really interesting, is that people, even if they've never had casual sex, they could identify the definition and the scripts that go with the various behavior, like with the various relationships. Um, the only time that people couldn't do that is that they would, had not engaged in um, either any kind of like kind of sexual intercourse, either anal or vaginal. And just by, by scripts, you mean how it generally progresses, right? Yeah, just like what does a booty call look like? And people would say like, oh, it's late at night. You call the person, you're drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, so not to say that that circumvents anything about the consent piece, but I think because people have a pretty good sense, even if they've never engaged in them, Um, They have a pretty good sense about how these relationships function. 
that um, there's some kind of, with the exception of the one night stand, but typically those people are like, they're leaving the bar together. And Mm -hmm. those people would say like, yeah, it was really obvious. This was like, we weren't going back to their place to, you know, watch a movie. And we weren't just going to get Chinese food. And that has like huge implications for like the implicitness of like, does that really count as consent? No, it doesn't. We know that. And there's lots of you know, really great research about, you know, looking at really explicit casual sex. It's not just, you know, saying no, but also saying yes. Um, So it wasn't something that I touched on. And I have seen like other casual sex researchers touching on it more. And it's hard because there is with these ones that are under the influence, like alcohol play, like is obviously just playing such a bigger role here. Um, The negotiation of those behaviors, how much, you know, how far people are comfortable moving, you know, with sexual activity. Um, It's hard to say where those lines are drawn um, in the consent issue, but it is a great question. And I just, it wasn't ever my focus, but I think Mm it has, it has gotten much more um, incorporated into more recent researchers um, kind of programs of, of research. But I'll say that casual sex is a really small area and most of it has now focused on um, consensual non-monogamy, not casual sex. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, and, you know, fair enough if it, there's nothing like really going on. Um, I think there's still some stuff, like some cool stuff to, to do with it. And most of it is just about how people negotiate these relationships that, you know, are types of relationships that don't maybe meet that gold standard, but are still functioning as relationship types for many people. And especially, um, you know, now when people maybe have access to more partners um, online, so their social circles are bigger, but they're not necessarily um, engaging in, you know, bigger uh, friend groups in real life or more dating circles in real life, but online, they definitely have them. Yeah. yeah. I find it really interesting that you use the term negotiations that we were talking just a moment ago about sort of the scripts and people can recognize the scripts. Yeah. And I wonder if that's almost, you know, a familiarity with the way in which the negotiation occurs. We have this understanding of, okay, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And then yeah. this is the outcome. Yeah. So the, net, the, the last two relationships and that, that's interesting because it does this piece about negotiating and they're really nuanced. Um, so the fuck buddy and the friends with benefits. So I'll start with the friends with benefits and then I like to work backwards because I think people can like get a better grasp on fuck buddy once they hear what the friends with benefits. So the, I mean the classic friends with benefits and this always drove me crazy because there'd be movies that come out and people be like, Oh, like that doesn't really match the movie. I'm like, it's Hollywood. It's make believe, (laughs) but they really are supposed to be existing friends. So there's a friendship that existed before sex happened. Now, maybe they're former relationship partners that were then friends, but mm. that's still, you know, and they were really friends, not just maybe, you know, kind of getting together with an ex, but they, there is a true, genuine existing friendship um, that exists. And when these two people hang out, sometimes they might have sex, but sometimes they might just have dinner and hang out and then they go home to their separate places and nobody has sex. Um, typically not under the influence could be regular sexual activity like this is a known thing hey this is my friend with benefit you know we might not always have sex um, every time we hang out but we regularly have sex with each other that's quite different than the fuck buddy and I always love to explain the fuck buddy as in the fuck buddy is just um, the friendship exists because of the sex so they know each other obviously you have contact information you're hanging out um, but when these people hang out 
they're for sure having sex. They're not going out for dinner and then going home to their separate places. (laughs) Like the whole reason for their friendship and I say that, you know, with some air quotes, is that the friendship is kind of just a shell because it kind of allows them to hang the sex on it. Mm-hmm. So once they stop having sex, for whatever reason, somebody moves away, somebody starts dating somebody, whatever, they stop having, they're, they're not friends anymore. And they're obviously, if they stop having sex, like that's the whole reason that they were friends. So mm-hmm. once that doesn't exist, they're just people that knew each other. And that's yeah. okay. Like, there's, you know, obviously I'm not like judging that. Um, so it's really interesting is people use those terms interchangeably, um, kind of like in this, like social media, in the media they did. But when I would sit down and ask people, you know, and I'd say like, when you say fuck buddy, is that the same as friends with benefits? And they would, you know, say these great things. And it came out in the focus groups about, you know, I would never call like this person a fuck buddy. Like they're a friend. And that would be mm-hmm. so disrespectful to call them a fuck buddy like they're a friend they're on my facebook they've met my family my mom really likes him or her whatever it is like and that's really the distinction is that they're genuine friends and that's not happening with the fuck buddy Mm -hmm. when we talked about like how do you become you know a fuck buddy with somebody they'd say like well sometimes it's just a booty call that became too regular so now you're in like fuck buddy territory so now you're hanging out you're doing some social stuff you're kind of becoming friends with them but again, once those like social activities are dropped off and there's no real friendship holding it together, you're just not going to see the person anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas the friends with benefits, the hope is that you would transition back to being friends if you decided to no longer engage in sexual activity with this person or somebody starts dating somebody, etc. Mm-hmm. So Jocelyn, with that in mind, if if I were to present you a scenario, can you define or can you tell me what category this would fall into? Ooh, okay. So, Do you have a friend? Just, no, I don't. <laughs> I have a fiance. <laughs> I have a fiance, so I'm out of the game. Always asking uh, for friends. Cool. <laughs> so no, just to kind of put it yeah. into context yeah. for our listeners. Um, okay, if let's say uh, let's say you're out at night, right? Saturday night. Okay. You're out. You're having a good time. You're with your your friends. Yeah. Um, and then you call send a text somebody shows up later you have sex they stay over the next morning you go out for lunch or brunch or whatever you do is that a booty call or is that a fuck buddy Ooh, see tricky because the booty call could stay over and again this is all from this isn't just like me riffing off making up stuff this is stuff from the focus groups where we talked with people like tell me about this how does it work what exactly happens Jocelyn, is this published work right now? Um, yeah, two of these papers are. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what we'll do is, just to help our listeners, yeah. we'll link these two papers on our site on this episode. So our listeners will be able to go back and, and read yeah. exactly what More you were talking it, about. Yeah. But Yeah, so typically with the booty, or like say with the one night stand, because there's pieces of all of that in that scenario. Like mm-hmm. you're out it's Saturday night, um, you're having a good time, but you, you know somebody because you called them or you text them. So you have their contact information. So Not a one night stand. Not really a one night stand. Um, You know, you could know the person, but maybe for the one night stand, like the knowing would be like, oh, I recognize that person from my class or they work in a different department, but they're not really a friend. So Mm. just by knowing the person, it kind of sounds like booty call ish. The booty call, um, the participants said that, you know, you could sometimes stay over, but it was typically only if like you were really too drunk to drive. If there wasn't an easy way to get home, um, you know, if there wasn't buses running, maybe like this was like pre-Uber, so it wasn't like there was like an easy way to 
to get back. Um, so staying over would be okay, but like you're getting up and you're leaving in the morning. Like you're not staying around for breakfast. (laughs) So the fact that in your scenario, you're saying like, Oh, staying over, you know, head out for brunch the next morning. Um, I'd say you're kind of like kind of booty callish kind of fuck buddy there, because again, you're engaging in kind of some social activities surrounding the sexual activity, but probably that person didn't come over for a sleepover and then you guys went out for breakfast and there was no sexual activity. Mm-hmm. So right. like there's a, there's an element of here of it here that makes it, um, you know, kind of one or the other. And it's not a perfect science. I mean, some elements have it. And what happens sometimes too, is that people would say, well, it started as the, as this, and then it kind of became this, we dropped off for a bit. Then we picked up back as this, like they're so fluid. So it's hard to pinpoint them exactly in terms of like where they pick up and where they drop off a little bit. So I'd say like probably between, you know, a booty call that's maybe transitioning into a a fuck buddy in that scenario. And and so I find that kind of interesting, being able to communicate what you're expecting out of this this partner or this person that you're in a relationship with is really important. But I I get the feeling and I feel like from what I've gleaned from your work is that generally it's not a conversation. It doesn't happen that way. It's it's much like you said. It's more fluid. You're 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 picking up on these like very subtle cues or scripts that are saying, oh, okay, this is a this is my fuck buddy, or this is a friend with benefit, or this is a one night stand. Like, and and they ch- they can change, but you're not necessarily having a conversation with that person saying, okay, now, now we're stepping it up to this. It just yeah, happens, right? Totally. The we talked at length about how cell phones or how young people think that they're the first modern day or first okay. casual sex. Uh, cohort in the world but no they're not there's a lot more going on but the modern dating landscape is very different than it was 20 30 years ago right when their parents were were growing up so so what does that look like and I I think we can kind of get into your work with uh with use the use of cell phones and emojis and emoticons yeah and like this is a really interesting like how I kind of got into it it was really at the end um at my dissertation trying to you know kind of put all this casual sex together and what really struck me was that we're really talking I mean they're relationships they might not be that gold standard committed monogamous relationship but a friend with benefits a booty call they're types of relationships and if we think about relationships as being more of on a spectrum there's different types and you know maybe committed as on one side less committed on one side they all can kind of come in and that gives us a little bit more f- like freedom as researchers as different relationship types are identified and named so like the fuck boy where that gets placed on that continuum um, so that really struck me as if these are relationships then how are they just what are the what are the main ways in which that we can identify how they're different from that stereotypical like committed relationship and one of the ones that I was one of the pieces I was really trying to figure out is when does sex happen so that really led me so and it was really I was writing up my final like general discussion and you know going back out to the research and looking at you know like encyclopedias on initiation of relationships and I was like wow we really have like very little understanding of when sex first happens in a relationship And I'm just like, how do we not know this? Like, how have people not covered this? How have we, how is this just like such a big part of relationships? Not that it's everything, but like, even for sex researchers, like, how do we not know that like, yep, this is typically when sex first happens. Um, So that really led me to um, the project that Drake, you worked on with us. And we had like that fabulous research group and like our, you know, our questionnaire just kept growing and growing. So it was like, where did you meet? And if you met here, then... You know, was this online and which online site and what were you looking for and did you find it there and were you happy? Like it just, it snowballed from there. But what was really interesting for that is 
trying to just get a sense of where are people meeting? Is it online, offline? And what are they looking for when they're out there looking for things? And I think like just to summarize it up the quickest is that people are looking for all kinds of things in all kinds of areas. Like there is no one size fits all because there were people that were say on maybe a more, you know, like match.com and seemed to be more serious that ended up with casual sex and they were perfectly happy with that. Or there was people that were on Tinder and ended up with a really committed relationship or people that were friends and family that said, yeah, I only want committed, but I ended up with a casual relationship and I was really happy with that. Like it's so hard to pinpoint what people are looking for and in what areas exactly. And I think if we like, because the majority of this research has been done with young adults, and I'd say like under the age of 30, they're in such a different um, mind frame than say 40, 30, I think is a little bit too soon, but say 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that, you know, you finished high school, maybe you did a little bit of vocational training, but then you like typically got married, you settled down, you had children and like life you know, really looked quite different than what life looks like for a 25 year old or a 30 year old now. So people are single much longer and they're engaging and experimenting in a bunch of different kinds of relationships, some of which are going to be committed. They might live with a partner, some of which are going to be very casual. And I think that's what's really changed about the kind of the social dynamics of what's happening right now, which is very different than what it was you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. So when we say that people are having so much more casual sex and they're not settling down, well, yeah, because they're single a lot longer. Like, and I always share this stat in my class that it's like the average age of first intercourse is 17. The average age of first marriage for men is like 32 in Canada and 31 for women. So I'm like, that's 13 potentially, let's say there's 10 years of being not married. So like, what do we think people are doing all this time? Like hanging at home, going to church, like, like it just, it's so unrealistic. But like, that's, I think when people don't think about these things, it's like, but people are single a lot longer. They marry a lot later if they even marry. I mean, like, that's also another huge value. Like maybe they choose not to get married. Maybe they choose not to have families until much later. And we've got all sorts of good, like, um, data that supports that in terms of like age of first marriage, age of first children, you know, things yeah. like that. So I think it all is all contributing to people engaging in different types of relationships, some of which are committed, some of which are very not committed. Yeah, I think it was beautiful. I mean, they, I think the goal for some of us when we were in doing that research with you a few years back was that we wanted to kind of, I, I think it rings, rings true for a lot of people, they want to know the optimal way of meeting uh, the perfect partner yeah. or getting in the, into long-term relationships, right? <laughs> and we're like, okay, Tinder, there's no way that people are getting in long-term, yeah. like committed relationships off, off Tinder yeah. versus like meeting through family, friends. And sure enough, everybody's yeah. having different variations of relationships be it casual long-term committed whatever and and reporting different types of happiness with with the relationship they're in and so i think that was the beauty of the that study in its own was just that we were looking for the perfect like the perfect way to meet someone but there isn't there really there really can't be right i think that that's probably a lot of like why students take a sexuality class or an interpersonal relationships class maybe not to meet the perfect person but to understand how to like I'm going to understand how to make my relationship work perfectly. And I think they're probably very disappointed coming out of that. And I see that not because they're disappointed in like hopefully what they learned or the class, but they're like, 
holy crap, it's so much more complicated. There's so many more things going on. And I have to like really look at like my own behavior here and how I may be contributing to my own destiny, <laughs> which is sometimes hard for people like that level of self-reflection to be like, oh, like I do this thing that's like identified as a problematic behavior for many people. Mm -hmm. So, but I think, you know, that idea of like where to meet the perfect person or this is the perfect place, it is, it, it just, it doesn't exist. And that's maybe like why sex research and relationship research has, you know, be has become such a popular field, um, will continue, I think, because people are just really interested in like, what's that unknown? What's the X factor? Like, why did I really have a great connection with this person that I've never had again, um, that I can't seem to get in this other place? Like, and like, there's no good answer for that. Mm -hmm. There's just no good answer about like that. How, why do we like who we like? Like there's some, there are some things, but there is just a, you know, factor X in there that I don't think any researchers can really explain how you can have really great chemistry with one person in that, a similar person in that situation at some time in your life. And the next time it wouldn't be the same. Like it is just yeah, a, a really factors. interesting. Way too many yeah. factors going into it. And I think, yeah. um, that's I, that I, it's, I think it's so true that that's why a lot of people kind of seek sexuality or, or sex research courses or the, or any of the undergraduate courses. They're always drawn to it. There's so many. I, I find that those courses are always like uh, filled to the to the last seat. And then you can't really actually get into those courses because so many people are interested in it. And yeah. uh, and obviously people like to talk about that and gossip about that. That's like the number one thing that people gossip yeah. about is who's yeah. who's having sex with who or who's dating who. Right. Yeah. And what's really interesting is when I look at the gender breakdown of psychology classes, like obviously predominantly women just, you know, and that's university as a whole now, and it's certainly a social sciences. But when I look at the, like the gender breakdown of my classes, it doesn't follow the same pattern in, in those interpersonal classes, meaning that there's more men than are, than I would expect to be in those classes. And I love that because I think that that really speaks to, um, and I'm just talking about my relationships classes, not the sexuality classes, but it, I would assume it would be the same um, in the sexuality too, really because relationships have just been like, that's a woman's domain. You know, women are good at it. And maybe women think like, I'm not interested or I don't need to take a class in it where men are like, no, I really need, I'm interested in this because I want to, I want to find out. And I think that what the men get out of that interpersonal class far, far, like succeeds whatever women get out of it because some of it is just that they haven't been exposed to it but I think that there isn't really an opening for men to talk about it in that way that we do start talking about and from a research perspective like I'm like this is what the research you know shows to you know potentially explain this behavior let's talk about what that looks like in real life and I think that the men get so much more out of that class and because they're given a voice that you know their opinion matters they have something to say you know they're often you know if we look at the vast majority of people are heterosexual they're the the you know the other large counterpart that's being represented in this research but we don't give them a lot of voice um, and I find that really interesting too when we talk about like just like the conversations that take place in media about sexuality and relationships, um, you know, predominantly it's, it's women mm -hmm. um, voicing those. And it, it's unfortunate because I think that we've missed out on some really important perspective from, from men. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think that's, uh, that's really interesting. Obviously I'm interested in because that's why I started doing work with you, but <laughs> yeah. um, we, we, 
previously had uh, alluded to the fact that we would talk a little bit about emoji use, and I mm-hmm. and we're probably not yeah. going to do it enough justice because we've been talking about this whole this whole oh, episode. Okay. But we we need to we need to address it so we don't completely. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say blue ball people, but uh, <laughs> I think it's appropriate in this episode to say that. But um, what have you done? I know it's a recent uh, mm-hmm. a new new yeah. area for you. So what have you found with emoji use and emoticon use? Because yeah. I want you to know, and you knew this, I think you had asked me when you started doing this work at whether or not I use emojis. And I said, I, I use emoticons. Uh, and you laughed Ooh, at me. old school. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah you, I, think you, I think you actually chirped me about it. Like, <laughs> regarding my emoticon use but I, i'm old school i like the emoticon so what's what have you found ah, okay okay so how i got into the emoji use was really part of this like modern communication how are people talking um and the use of okay so we know the texting is so big or kind of you know electronic communication if we but the majority of what we're talking about here is texting um and there had been some good research from justin garcia and amanda gesselman who are looking at the use of emojis and th- that was a study that they did <laughs> Um, funded by so it was single it was the singles in America data which is funded I want to say match and I can't believe that might be wrong but it is it's funded by one of the big dating um, like um, online dating sites mm-hmm. and I, I, I was so excited because I thought they'd pick it up and run with it but it really just was a one-time thing um, and they were saying that you know people who use emojis they're more likely to go on more first dates in the past year and these weren't people that were on the dating site this was just a poll of you know just like average um, this is American um, sample um, so people who use emojis they're more likely to have first more first dates they're more likely to report more um, sex in the past year etc and so really wanted to pick up on that and um, they looked at just emoji use in general, but what we wanted to look at, so I had two honor students that worked on this with me, is looking at what specific emojis are people using and how are they using them. Now, we did ask, uh, Dre, I'll be happy, because we asked them about emoticon use, um, and then we just kind of went into emoji use, because there were people that were like, <laughs> no, I don't use emoticons at all. Um, average use of emoticons was like a, in the past three days, whereas emoji use was within the past 12 hours, 12 to 18 hours. So a little bit more common, um, but it gets complicated because many um, systems, even if you enter an emoji, so you use like the punctuation and enter an emoji it or an emoticon, it pushes as an emoji. So, and that it's hard because how do we ask people like, well, were you meaning to use an emoji? Was that really an emoticon, et cetera? So we just like, we reported that and then we just talked about only emoji use. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is that, um, Half of the sample, and our sample was about 700 people. It was online, just a convenient sample. Um, half of the people said that the appearance of emojis uh, would lead to sexting. And that, you know, most of the time, at least 50% of the time, um, they were present when sexting happened. Um, and that was really interesting. We didn't, like, go too much further with that. But, you know, you think about, uh, and I think this is how it gets used, is that, you know, somebody drops an emoji and it could be like the smirk face or the the wink face just to kind of see what the person's response is and then judging by that person's response are they you know kind of inviting do they kind of reciprocate a little you know kind of flirtatious response then it kind of opens the door so it's not like somebody just blasts out you know a bunch of eggplant emojis but they kind of warm up a little bit test the audience and like oh this person seems a little bit you know uh, receptive to this so I'll so I'll carry on um, so we asked about like what emojis they use in sexually suggestive messages, so sexts, and the top three were the tongue, 
the eggplant, and then what is actually the sweat droplets. So it's not the one big drop, it's the three. And then we also asked about the face emojis. um, And the three most common were the smirk face. Um, And I don't know even how to describe that one, but you can just (laughs) like kind of a little side smile, smirk, whatever. The wink face, and then the blowing a kiss face. With a heart in it? With a heart in it? Yeah, with the heart. Yeah, yeah. And what was really interesting is that people said that um, the emojis that, because we asked them, what was the last emoji that you were, so if you said, yes, I have engaged in sexting, I've used emojis, then we asked these questions. And then we said, um, what was the last emoji that you received in a sexually suggestive uh, message? And what was the last emoji that you sent in a sexually suggestive emoji or sext? message and they're both the same the list was exactly the same for what people are reporting that they what what emojis they receive in sex and what emojis they send in sex now obviously there could be some matching here that like i start to use certain emojis my partner then reciprocates them we send them back and forth and etc and like we do know that that happens in messaging that people start using the same language Um, but i don't think that that's necessarily all that's going on i think that there's just some really specifically uh, sexy emojis that people are using. So Emily Kleftinger, she was my honor student. She was really looking at um, extroversion and sexy emoji use. So she created, um, you know, looked at what people's their top 10 sexy emojis with extroversion. And there was a small um, relationship. It was significant, but it's pretty small um, in terms of people that are more extroverted are more likely to use sexy emoji in their messaging. Um, they're also more likely to have um, higher numbers of casual sex partners. So there's obviously like there's some some patterns that are explaining the people for like the like the people that use the emojis, but they're so pervasive. I think even while we were doing our study, while we were in recruitment, like another 500 new emojis were released. Oh, yeah. So it becomes really hard to keep up to date on this. I don't think any like new ones were um, release that like either would have changed the top 10 sexy emoji sent like our center received but like the this was funny the peach emoji was changed so it used to look kind of like a bum <laughs> but then the new version of it actually made it to look more like a peach and people were mad like people were mad that they lost the bum emoji because now they had this peach emoji that like looked actually too fruit like that people were upset so it's things like that and it's like you can't anticipate that i can't change that they've changed the peach bum emoji like so it's just like weird things like that that happen when you're doing technology research that make it really hard to keep up to date and even i think now like before the paper will get published uh, to get published in the fall in the Canadian Journal of Human Sexuality, there's another like 300 new emojis getting getting published. Again, I don't think any ones that are going to be used in terms of sexy emoji use, but still just hard to keep up to date with them. Yeah, and we've talked about that before about like the transiency of technology research, how it just it's always totally. changing, right? So I mean, yeah, it's so prevalent in that work too. It's just it's you have to be on the ball and and ready to address things as they happen, and sometimes they stick around, sometimes yeah. they don't. And, and they evolve and they often change, yeah. right? So, uh, and so you have a long list, longer than usual for most guests, but I mean, this, <laughs> this is not a bad thing at all. It's, it's actually quite good. Cause I mean, this is really interesting stuff. So, I mean, you have a ton of casual sex misconceptions and hookup misconceptions. So let's just jump into them. Let's, let's pick them apart. 
Cool. Well, earlier we were talking about like porters or journalists will be like, oh, why would anybody want to have casual sex? Like it's so bad. And that's definitely, I would say, probably like the number one um, misconception. I mean, I'm sure it's a real thing for lots of people, but that casual sex is bad sex and that or that casual sex lacks intimacy. Um, and related to that um, being that only insecure people have casual sex, meaning that they can't have, you know, meaningful, you know, other ca- other types of sex. So they can only have insecure or only insecure people would enjoy casual sex mm-hmm. because, you know, they don't have to get too connected. Um, and that's certainly not the case um, for the people who do engage in casual sex. And this, again, when we talk about like 85% of people have engaged in some kind of casual sex, like, that's a high majority of like, that's a high percentage of people and the people when, and this is hard to get into when we talk about like survey data or quantitative data, but when you get into some of the qualitative data of casual sex, the people who are, you know, I don't want to say good at it, but the people who maybe accept it for what it is, know that it's, you know, not going to lead into a relationship if it does great, but that's not their primary reason. Um, for those people who are able to be very embracing of it, they are able to be, you know, very open um, in the moment. And I'm thinking of like Peggy Kleinplatz um, in some of her optimal sexuality and looking at, you know, why why can some people like have these great, great sex lives? And not all of those people were reporting primary committed partners. Some of those were saying that the best sex that I've had are these casual partners that I've had, you know, at different times in my life. And I think it speaks to um, when we talk about intimacy, for whatever reason in relationship research, intimacy has been coupled with tenants or like ish, concepts like romance and relationships. And I don't really think that's the case. I think for many people, that's how they get intimacy is through their romantic relationships. But sexual intimacy doesn't have to, you know, come through that as a you know a conduit to get to intimacy and there are people that are able to have highly satisfying and highly intimate casual sex um, interactions with you know the same people different people um, it just I think that there's where they get in where they get into that intimacy um, piece looks very different for those people than than others right um, again that's not for everybody but I think that when we start to say like oh who would have casual sex people just had it because they thought it was going to lead to something else like that's a really kind of superficial take on casual sex um, and I, I don't think that that's the, the the status for lots of people. I think for many people, it is rewarding in and of itself for no other reason, just like it was good sex yeah. and they create great connections with people and they have had those. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I so there's another kind of something that I've been I've thought of and I've, I've heard before as well is um, I, I, I get worried when I'm, I'm starting to date somebody, whether or not having sex too quickly might be a detriment to my long-term goals with that person. So I, I get, I've heard the is it three date rule. It's usually three dates, right? So you yeah, got to wait three yeah. dates to have sex or else you're rushing things <laughs> and then all shit's going to break loose. Is that true? Generally? Well, so the three date rule is really interesting. And when I first got into this, I was trying to figure out like, where did this come from? Is there any reference to it? And some of that stuff just comes from the media. Like it literally will be in a popular television show. It gets kind of picked up, it gets discussed. And then for whatever reason, it becomes like some urban legend. And then it becomes like, like indoctrinated 
indoctrinated into like, oh, don't have sex before the th- like before the third date. Um, there was one study. So my former advisor, Ed Harold, um, and it was one of the original casual sex studies that I had kind of built on on my master's, asked about like, when would you typically have sex with somebody? And it was, you know, kind of by the like on the first date, by the second or third date, etc. That's the only research piece that I've seen about these dates. And that's what's really interesting. So when we, and Drake, this was the study that you were involved mm-hmm. with. And remember how, like, how many hours we spent about, like, how do we ask people about when they first had sex? Yeah. And it becomes so complicated because we don't really know um, how much people know each other because of social media before, say, they meet in person for that first date. And of course, we can't even call it a date anymore because people get all wigged out about like, well, it's not a date. We're just hanging out. I'm like, okay, so the first time you hung out with this person on a one-on-one situation <laughs> where it was date-like, but don't call it date. Like, it's just all these things become so so complicated. Yeah. But especially because, you know, back in the day when there was a first date, maybe you know the person from school. There was a, maybe a phone call to arrange a date. But that first date was like getting to know the person, finding out about them. But all of that kind of, you know, where they went to school, where they vacationed last year, who are their friends, what they did last weekend, that's all up for grabs on Facebook. So if you're friends with that person on Facebook, you've had kind of, you've gone through that first, like, oh, where'd you grow up? What do you do? Oh, you have a big family. Well, where are they? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That takes place before that first date. So it becomes really, or that first hangout, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> first, yeah. So it becomes really hard to now look at that and say, you know, and I think the the media is, is very quick to want to say like, oh, sex, sex is happening so much quicker. And I'm like, well, is it really? Or is it just that that learning and all that kind of predate stuff is taking place online, you know, via social media. So just like, you know, by looking at somebody else's stuff and then how much people talk or text before they actually have that quote unquote first date. Um, So it's really hard to say three dates or not. (laughs) Um, And this has taken us like so long to like go through this data to really separate out. But what we ended up was with basically six different groups. So people who met through work or school friends or a family or some kind of a social interest group like a sports team etc an online dating site the bar party a smartphone app or online social network so like facebook instagram twitter and that's the order um, that it seems to go in in terms of um, from time to first sexual activity so that's really interesting so the online social networks are actually engaging in sexual activity quicker than the smartphone apps, even than the bar or party, mm-hmm. which is, I find really interesting. Yeah, that blew my and mind. And again, yeah. I, I, and I think it's because people have a sense of who this person is. So, hey, do you want to hang out? We've been friends on Facebook for a couple months. We have some mutual friends, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of know this person. Um, so that's really interesting. And it's about six days of timing from like first meeting to first sex. In-person meeting, right, uh, Joss? Yeah, this is in-person meetings. Because we had to differentiate between in-person and then knowing the person before too, right? That's the big, like, as you said, a lot of it happens online. And it's kind of, yeah, what all that pre-meeting, like how much you knew the person before you actually met. Like vetting. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so it gets really complicated. Um, And I think like what 
I would say when, you know, when people say like, oh, like when does sex happen or does sex happen too quickly? And I think it just, it happens quickly. Like it's not too quickly. Like why are we putting a value on it? It does happen quickly because people know each other more than they used to. And maybe they're not looking for, you know, always looking for a committed relationship. If that happens, great. But if we're just hanging out, we've got good chemistry, we get along, we're having fun. Then for many of those people, I think sex is... And I don't want to say it's expected because I think that pushes us into some like some murky territory of consent, mm. but that it is a, a commonly associated, you know, behavior that goes along with new dating relationships. Mm. And I'm talking about the consensual stuff, not about anything not consens- cons- consensual there. Um, so it just becomes part of a, a normal part of you know these relationships, um, and th- those relationships may not be very developed yet because they're more social or they're more, it's more of a, a friend base to start. Yeah. So one thing, uh, one thing that we talked about in our previous episode with Shana is, is um, how familiarity can lead to differences in decision-making regarding condom use and all sorts of other things. But what I'm hearing here is that familiarity can actually also lead to, you know, familiarity in the sense of the social network and and knowing more about this person Um, that can actually lead to sex a little bit more quickly than other yeah. situations. Yeah, and I think so because this person has a no, like they're a known entity, you know. We've mm-hmm. got 14 mutual friends, you know, they're in my class at school or they work at the, you know, in a different department on a different floor in my building, but I'm going to see them. We go to the same cafeteria or we go to the same lunch spot on Tuesdays because they have this, that, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there's all this level of similarity. These per- people are in your social circle. Um, and I think that lends itself to this familiarity. They're a known person. They're safe, um, which probably le- leads into some of the, you know, kind of the safer sex negotiation pieces. Um, but just that they're a known person. They're not a stranger who you don't know anymore. And I mean, it's it's probably virtually impossible to meet somebody and Google them and not be able to find something on them. Mm-hmm. You know, some sports team, like even if they're like, oh, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Instagram, like there's some reference to them, yeah. you know, whether it's like whatever it is, like people are typically, they have an online track record and you can typically find it. Um, and that's pretty uncommon. I think that people are, you know, not engaging in any kind of social media and they don't want to be found. So mm-hmm. people kind of have a, a, an online self that you can match up to. And I think that that um, helps people have a sense whether or not it's real or not, but have a sense of knowing this person. Mm-hmm. That interaction between familiarity and uh, time to sex could be something that'd be really interesting to think about, too, is like, as we talked in Shana's episode, the more familiar you are with the person, the less likely you are to usually talk about set, like condom use yeah, but at the same yeah. time there's a lot of interactions between how you met who the person is and who you see them as because i mean imagine most of the time as shana said one night stands are more frequently using people that are engaging in one night stands or uh, more casual sex are usually using condoms more because they don't know the person well enough right it's, it's different yeah. from knowing a family friend and yeah. saying okay i know this person I've, I've known this person in different contexts and now i don't feel like i should talk about uh using condoms that's different but that's not what we're here to talk yeah. about we're here to talk about uh other <laughs> things so um i think uh you have i mean from the study that we've been talking that you've been talking about that i helped with you have a lot of cu- fun stats that you always brought up in uh that you had brought up in a couple uh conference presentations that i really enjoyed i think you might have some of those stats yeah so some of the ones that I liked um, were, you know, the number of hours, you know, so the hours yeah. um, 
so when we asked people, you know, from this talking about this first meeting to first sex, so what typically happens is um, when I look at how this is, and it's just, you know, kind of a histogram of when sex typically occurs, the vast majority of people have sex within seven days of meeting. Now I'm talking about meeting in person. So knowing the person online, but meeting to first sex typically happens within um, the first seven days. And there's a huge, huge number of people that it happens within the first 24 hours. And it's not even the first 24 hours. It's actually within the first, uh, it's, it's about six to eight hours. <clears throat> and if you think about that, um, it, it, it kind of makes sense. So you meet this person at seven at night, you go out, you, you know, like, and I'm, I'm talking very like kind of classical terms here. You go for dinner, you go for drinks, or maybe you just go for drinks and appies, whatever it is, you do some kind of social activity together. If sex is going to happen within those first 24 hours, it's not happening tomorrow at 7 p.m. or tomorrow at 4 p.m. when like we've both retired to our separate places and we've both gone to work or school or whatever. It's going to happen on that date. So if sex is going to happen within the first 24 hours, it's going to happen within the first eight hours of going on that, that date with that person. Um, and then even if I look at people who met at the bar or a party and they had sex within, say, three hours of meeting... Um, and that's what their stat really looks like. It's within three hours, a little bit shorter. If you meet the person at say 11, 12 PM, like we're not staying up all night. We're not staying up. Like we're not going to have sex <laughs> staying up until, you know, 5 PM tomorrow afternoon. It's going to happen now. Um, but then I looked at of those people that even had sex within three hours. Um, how many of those people end up in a relationship? And it's about 30% of people end up not necessarily going into a relationship, but they end up dating that person. And this wasn't a casual sex. Like this was very specific that you ended up hanging out with this person in a dating context. Now, does that say that that other person wanted that? You know, we don't have that kind of dyadic data, but I think it really does speak to the, the piece that for many people, sex happens quickly, but just because sex happens quickly doesn't negate the possibility of a relationship developing. And whatever you want to use as a relationship, if that was just a dating relationship, if that was like a committed relationship where labels were used, it looks different for lots of people. But that was really um, kind of cool for me to see that just because sex happens quickly doesn't mean that these people aren't interested in dating. And I think that's a real challenge to this notion of like, if you like this person, don't have sex with them because that's how you'll show them that you like them is by not having sex with them. Yeah. And I don't think that that's what a lot of people are using. They're like, hey, we have this great connection. I know you already. And again, because that first meeting, if all that kind of first date stuff of like those conversations have happened online or by texting and just by looking at somebody's Instagram posts and their Facebook feed, then that first meeting isn't really a true first date anymore. Yeah. So it's that time to first sex meeting isn't really the same anymore. And I think that's what some of this data is, is showing. And I will say like some of this other like timing to first sex, the only other research that I found, um, it's coming out of a very religious university in the States. Um, and their kind of underlying messaging is like, if sex happens too soon, it doesn't result in a relationship but they're using a highly religious sample for that. And that's the majority of the other research that's available in this, in this area it comes from this one specific highly religious university. Um, Cause I was at first, I was like, Oh, I really missed this. But then when you start looking at it, I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay, I think we still need some more like unbiased, non-religious data to really get a good sense. And I don't think we're there yet, 
But again, it's just, it's so complex with, you know, taking into account how people are meeting and engaging online before they're meeting in person. And I'm, I'm not sure that I even have a good sense of how to go about that from a research perspective because it is so complex. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, well, it's an interesting fact regardless. I mean, talking about the time to sex was always the, the most appealing part of that project. Whenever people were asking like, whoa, so you measured what relationships occurred after like you had sex really soon. I'm like, yeah, there's actually, when there were actually relationships 30% of the time, if you had sex within the first meeting, first few hours, you still 30% of the people still reported having a relationship, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I love that stuff that just challenges people still like, um, and I don't think that people think that they're holding these stereotypes. They're just, they're holding these very valued thoughts about things that maybe they haven't like, you know, thought about where those those value like where their statements or their kind of um their sentiments are coming mm-hmm. from and that's what i love to just be like oh okay so if you have sex within three hours you're probably not going to date this person i'm like well for 30 percent of the people that's not true like that's the stuff that i've always loved to do yeah. is just really challenge people about their their thoughts and beliefs about some of this stuff that's and typically my stuff is just always like it's stuff that people have some like pretty specific opinions on and that's where i have fun like you know kind of getting into their brains and challenging them no it's 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 a fascinating i think you hit the nail on the head when you said people have all these preconceived notions about what they think about Uh casual sex and everybody has an opinion on it and you know is any of it based in fact or you know is it personal experience or anecdote that they share and you Mm -hmm. know a myth that gets perpetuated on television something like that that you know yeah hard to disprove yeah absolutely yeah all right with that we'll wrap up yet another episode of brain buzz thank you jocelyn for coming on the show it's been a fantastic time we've learned a ton um and we really enjoyed having you here